Before we begin, we want to take a moment to thank our sponsors at Audible. Now that the weather's getting nicer, I'm back to reading and listening to books in the park. And with Audible, it's never been easier. Every month, I get one credit to pick any title, plus two Audible originals from a monthly selection. In addition, I get access to news digests from the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the Washington Post. If you go to audibletrial.com slash ymopodcast, you'll get two free audiobooks on us. Download thousands of titles offline anytime, anywhere. Having trouble deciding what to pick? Audible lets you keep your credits for up to a year. Find your summer read and support your favorite National Film Registry podcast. Once again, that's audibletrial.com slash ymopodcast. Thank you for your support. And now, on with the show. Every year since 1989, the Library of Congress has selected 25 films to add to the National Film Registry. The criteria? The films must be culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. Each week on You're Missing Out, we take a look at one of these films to try and get to the heart of why they were selected and why they still matter. This week, we're showing the 1990 inductees a little extra love before we close out the season, plus a sneak peek as to what we'll be covering for Season 3. Well, gang, we did it. Another season in the books. Uh, you know, it's it's crazy to think. Uh, I feel like we were recording uh, last season's finale just a mere more than a year ago. And now we're here wrapping up season two. Uh, you know, it took us a lot longer to get around to season two than it should have. A fact that uh, our listeners probably haven't noticed, uh, Tom never brings it up. But, uh, you know, you'd be surprised. It took us a while. Uh, Happy to say it will not take us as long to get around to season three. But for those of you who stuck with us uh, over, you know, from season one into season two, we're so glad you were here. Uh, And for the folks who just joined us, we've definitely picked up a whole lot of new listeners in the second season. We are so glad you're here. And uh, we hope you'll stick around for season three. We've got a lot of fun stuff, which we'll be talking about in a little bit. but. If you were not here when we wrapped up our last season, you may not know what's going on because we already did our last movie of the season, uh, Red River. So what are we still doing on your feed? Well, this is our finale episode, our season two wrap up, where we're going to have a little fun. We're going to talk about the season as a whole. We're going to look at all of the films that we talked about, all of the films that we nominated for the registry. Uh, And we've got a fun way of doing that. We're going to do a bunch of sort of superlatives. We always wrap up our episodes talking about how these movies fared at the Oscars. Well, we're going to wrap up our season talking about how these 25 movies uh, fare at our own personal Oscars with a number of categories. Without further ado, we got a couple questions that we're going to address about the 25 films we talked about this season. Uh, Kyle, why don't you kick us off? So before we get into the actual award categories, I want to know um, which of these films was your favorite first time viewing? So in terms of first viewing, obviously we're talking about like, I want to say it as like first viewing in terms of like first viewing in the context of doing this show, right? Because this is a film that I had watched when we were wrapping up season one, so I had a sense of what it was. So I'm, I'm putting it in there. My favorite first time viewing was Love Me Tonight. It's not a movie that, uh, as we talked about in our episode, gets talked about much. I discovered it because of the National Film Registry. 
Uh, and I suppose I kind of went into it just thinking, well, it's here just because it's Maurice Chevalier and blah, 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 blah. But when I finally sat down and watched it, I was just, I was so charmed and won over by it. And to this day, I still hum, isn't it romantic from time to time? So uh, my favorite first time viewing is uh, Love Me Tonight. My favorite first time viewing is uh, All Quiet on the Western Front. I thought it was just uh, an absolute powerhouse, just pretty much a perfect picture. Uh, has stuck with me ever since I watched it. And I uh, definitely, I don't know if I'll say it'll be in my uh, rotation anytime soon. It's uh, pretty much a bummer, but it's definitely one I will talk about very highly to uh, everyone uh, within sight for quite a while. All Quiet on the Western Front rules. Kyle? It's the freshman. We talk about this so much on our episode. Um, Harold Lloyd just doesn't get talked about enough. Um, I love everything about this. This movie was made in 1925, and still there's something that somehow manages to be timeless, and there are still aspects that you can connect to to today's films, to today's youth you know so i i just love that aspect of it i would watch it over and over again segueing into the next question your most enjoyable rewatch uh for me the most enjoyable rewatch was raging bull it's a movie i'd watched a lot in my life but it had been a few years since i had watched it uh, a lot of life changes whatever whatnot but watching it with fresher eyes in my 30s uh especially on that unbelievably gorgeous 4k blu-ray that criterion put out it was uh uh it was like a revelation all over again uh it's just kind of just a monumental movie it's i just love it so much it has a real personal place in my heart and uh it's good to know that uh, that will never change uh, this current rewatch just solidified it in my mind raging bull beauty my most enjoyable rewatch uh and i wouldn't have expected this was the great train robbery I think it's something that I always had. I always, you know, watched in an academic sense as one of those earlier films. But like we talked about on the episode, I mean, this is a turn of the century movie that is still thoroughly and viscerally entertaining. I came to really love this film as a piece of entertainment on on this rewatch. And um, getting to go out and see where it was shot certainly had an impact on that, too. Uh, our discussion with Mike Scott was was really great for that. I just, I really came to be charmed by The Great Train Robbery, and I think it's it, it's weirdly now moving further away from, like, historic artifact in my mind and much more into, like, a, just a film that I really like as a movie. So The Great Train Robbery for me was my favorite rewatch. For me, it was definitely The Godfather. Um, you know, I don't know if it was the time that we were setting up the show or, uh, again, just knowing you're never going to get disappointed, right? Um there's just something about, uh, I don't know. I think it is just more of that, just that time. I mean, it's a good movie. It's in there for a reason. It's undisputed. Um, yeah, if you haven't seen it, what are you doing? Kyle, rolling in with the hot take of The Godfather, it's a good movie. <laughs> I can give you an alt take, but it'll just be, no, it's no. a wonderful life. It's a great no, Christmas movie. I love movie. it. What do you I want from it. me? I'm all for it. The last question before our awards categories, if you could go back in time and watch one movie in theaters when it debuted, which would it be? I, this is obvious, and I, I'm, I, no one will be surprised when I say this, but it's Fantasia. And I say that knowing that Tom and I saw it in a repertory screening at our local movie theater, but there's something about the theatrical experience. I, I just, uh, this weekend got to see Sleeping Beauty in 70mm, which is something I've always wanted to see. A 70mm print of Sleeping Beauty screened at the Museum of the Moving Image. 
And Me too. Oh, you went? When did you go? I went on Sunday. Kyle, we were in the same theater. What? I was also there on Sunday. <laughs> the one thirty show? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Kevin and Don't I. Kevin, Kevin, Kevin bought me tickets for my birthday. You know what's worse? Is I was sitting there with Bella, who has been on the show, sitting there with Bella, and I had the thought of like, should I have texted Kyle and been like, yo, we're doing this thing, come out? No, he's probably got something going on by this point. It was too short notice. Did you sit, did, did you sit in the George Lucas chairs? No. No, okay. no, no. We were, we were more centered because I wanted to really be able to take it in. We're centered because that's the, literally the exact same thing that we said. How the fuck did this happen? That's so weird. It's so that's, weird. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway. So, so I had just seen, we, Kyle and I have just seen Sleep Beauty in 70mm and to see it in 70mm, to see that film grain and to see that large image, you get an appreciation for just the, the artistry of it. You know, the, those backgrounds are so beautifully painted. Those colors are so beautifully rendered. Knowing that Fantasia was originally presented in this Fantasound sound system and the fact that I've been into the theater where it debuted, that Broadway theater, thinking about how overwhelming an experience that must have been and knowing how much I already love Fantasia, I just to be able to see it, how, how Walt Disney had envisioned it being seen in this overwhelming you know, concert experience, I think would have been incredible. So my answer to that is, is Fantasia. So my answer is, it's a wonderful life. I really would have liked to be able to see that movie on the big screen, opening opening night, opening weekend, whatever the fuck, just with a crowd of people that don't know what they're about to see it, and just get that overwhelming emotion just wash over me on the big screen. I haven't gotten a chance to see it even in a repertory screening yet, but the idea of seeing that in the opening weekend when nobody knows what's about to hit them is, uh, is very enticing to me. Um, for me, it was Rebel Without a Cause. I wanted to see, I guess, what that generational tonal shift was as it was happening. Because I know I think it's easy for us to look at it in hindsight, but I'm sort of, uh, I'm, I'm sort of curious to know if it was something that happened with a little bit more, you know, efficiency or whatnot, or if it's sort of kind of gradually, you know, the, the type of tonal shift of how we kind of talked about the teenager or whatever, and how that sort of evolved you know i, I want to kind of look at what the generational impact of that was in that moment and now we're going to segue into our awards <laughs> so yeah we're doing a number we should clarify for folks who don't know we don't do best picture no because we never want to we don't i mean it would be insane it's insane to compare these things right but we could but we it would could. open up a wormhole and everything would get sucked up inside of it and well, no, we it is this It is this thing of like, you know, we had talked about like in season one, we talked about like, should we end by ranking all the movies? And that was easier to do in season one when they were other than Nanook, all narrative features. But like, we're getting into the territory where it's like, how the hell do you even compare Meshes of the Afternoon and the afternoon. Godfather? Like, I what do you do? Exactly That's what insane thinking. to do. Yep. And especially as we get later on and it's like, well, how do we put color bars? You know, like, what do we do? Uh, so we don't do picture, but we do pretty much every other category. Well, we don't do supporting performances. Maybe we'll add that later. But we're going to go right in. Kyle, what is our first category? Best actor. All right. So uh, my pick for best actor is Robert De Niro in Raging Bull. I mean, just one of the Titanic performances. It's just unbelievable. I mean... Really, what else is there to say? It's just a masterclass in acting, and it just it's so real and so honest and so 
ugly and just so human. It's just magnetic. I mean, what De Niro did in that movie, you know, I don't know if anybody's topped that until like Daniel Day-Lewis started just knocking out acting awards like it was nobody's business. It's just, uh, it's just, I mean, what else is there to say? Robert De Niro and Raging Bull, best actor, baby. I was in a bind here because not only am I trying with these uh, picks to not overdo it with one film, to not just hand out a bunch of films, but I was also trying to keep conscious of what, if it's a case where I thought things should be divided, if it was a case where I couldn't decide between two performances or two uh, people, I thought about, well, what's Tom going to pick? Maybe I can go the other way. And I had no doubt in my mind Tom was picking Robert De Niro for Raging Gold for Best Actor, so I started thinking, well, do I go with James Dean? Do I go with Brando and the Godfather? There's a number of ways I can go. But when it all boiled down to it, I just couldn't argue with Robert De Niro and Raging Bull. So that's also my pick for Best Actor for all the reasons <laughs> Tom said. It's just, it is just like an inarguable performance. There's a, a, I think when I sit down and just rank all of the Best Actor winning performances of all time, I think Raging Bull is at the number one spot. Like, it's just empathetic without ever being sympathetic it is vile without ever being villainous it's it's doing so many things and it's just such a, a powerhouse performance I, I i gotta give it to de niro for rage Bull. i am not going that route um i'm going a little i'm going a little bit of a left turn actually my actor is not an actor um, I'm just going to preface this by saying uh, the reason I made this selection as I was thinking more broadly with the registry, or I guess my way of thinking of it broadly, which is if these movies, I don't know, were shot up into space, the aliens found them, you know, what would their takeaway sort of be of film? And when you watch John F. Kennedy in primary, it is hard not like if they if they don't know anything about u.s history they know who we fucking picked that's all i'm freaking saying right he's so uh, just so bold in that and there's just i just love going back and revisiting and just seeing the clear contrast between these two candidates and how could you not i guess um we did good until we didn't america so uh my pick is jfk kyle you piece of shit um, not because of that pick, but because by you doing that and bending the rules that way to include JFK as a best actor pick, you have opened the floodgates for our season six finale where Tom is putting the Zapruder film in best cinematography, best <laughs> You've damned us. Well, as if we, Kyle you created... was the one that was going to damn us to that. That was going to yeah. happen anyway. No, but Come now on, he's bro, created. A, anyway. Now he's created a precedent. Um, okay. Listen, if there's anyone, I've created, who's a, I've created a president rules. precedent. Kyle, what's our next category? <laughs> our next category is best actress. Uh, my pick for best actress. This is one of those cases I was alluding to before, where I was between two, and I mean there was a million that you could choose. We really we had a. Uh, a murderous row of actress performances this year. I mean, hell, we started our season with All About Eve, which are two of the best actress performances ever. But I was between two, and I just sat down and went, okay, I'm very confident Tom is picking one of these two, so I'm going to go with the other one to make sure I can spread the wealth. And as such, my pick for best actress is Greta Garbo in Ninochka. 
For an actress not known for her comedic performances, she's so funny and she's so winning in this movie. Um, especially going through a lot of Garbo's filmography and knowing about her life, thanks to, to what Bella had read and brought up the episode, like you just appreciate what an incredible tightrope walk that movie is. And she's so good. She's so funny. She's so charming. And she plays that transformation from stiff Soviet envoy to romantic leads so well. It's one of the best romantic comedy performances of all time. One of the best, you know, uh, character arc performances of all time. My best actress goes to Greta Garbo in Ninochka. Uh, yeah, so I'm pretty sure I know what Mike is referencing, uh, what I'm going to pick. It is the same Titanic level of De Niro in Raging Bull. I'm going with Jenna Rallins in Woman Under the Influence. Like, what do you, like, what do you even say? Like, it's just, like, you just look at it and go, oh, yeah, okay, this is, like, the greatest performance by a woman in any lead role of all time it's just out of control good uh i get mike wanting to spread the wealth but for me it's just like i don't care if it's obvious jenna allen's best actress just with a bullet um yeah i kind of had a feeling that that would be tom's pick so i wanted to like kind of share the wealth uh a little bit around <laughs> as well um because that was an easily an obvious choice so not that it's not deserved um i'm going with natalie wood and rebel without a cause um, I just wanted to share, I was doing a little bit of uh, research, kind of preparing for this a little bit, and I just wanted to share the little quip on the Hollywood Reporter um, uh, article about it when they had, I guess, interviewed uh, the director, Nicholas Ray, and I guess in a 1974 interview on a drunken night out with Dennis Hopper, she was in a car crash, and the doctor called her a goddamn juvenile delinquent, to which she yelled, did you hear that? He called me a goddamn juvenile delinquent. Now, do I get the part? Which I'm just like, yeah, listen, I mean, that alone seals it, you know? Natalie Wood, she's my best actress. So much like at the actual Oscars that year, despite giving a landmark performance, Betty Davis screwed out a best actress again. Yep, sorry. Yep, fucker. <laughs> Next up, we have best director. So for me, this one, this was a hard one. There was a lot of great choices. <laughs> to work with here and um you know we uh, me and mike talk about uh when it comes to director you think like what would the movie look like if it was handled by somebody else probably gonna surprise mike i came very close to picking maya darren from Ashes of the afternoon because literally that's her movie like there's literally it's not even like who else would have made that only her but i want to I, I don't know i just had to go with a movie that literally just shouldn't work it's just such a crazy fucking movie and it shouldn't work. We talked about how it's just an insane balancing act that they pull off. But what Frank Capra does in It's a Wonderful Life is just, it's, it's a magic trick. It's, it's, it's one of the craziest balancing acts I've ever seen in a movie. And no, I don't think anybody else could have done it. There's been a lot of attempts at doing this kind of story that have worked, but not this worked as well as this. And Frank Capra, good job. Much like how Tom was talking about, you know, we say, you know, the mark of best director is, is does this movie work without them? Does this movie work with other, in other hands? And that was something I certainly took into consideration here. And there are a lot of films that we could look at and say, well, that'd be a little different. Uh, Godfather would be a little different if Coppola didn't direct it. Um, you know, Raging Bull would be different if Marty didn't direct it. Woman Under the Influence would be different if Cassavetes didn't direct it, and so on. When I sit down and think, if anybody else was behind the camera directing this, how different would it be? I think the most radical difference uh, is not a narrative feature at all. I think credit has to be given. We talked about her extensively um, on the episode and what she did to move the medium forward. But 
Good God, what Barbara Koppel does in Harlan County, USA, is incredible. I mean, when you think about how that moved the medium forward, and when you think about the fact that, you know, Tom said, like, when he was talking about It's a Wonderful Life shouldn't work, Harlan County, USA shouldn't work with her, a New York film student, a young New York film student, going to Harlan County to make a film about the coal mines sounds like a nightmare. And instead, it's arguably the greatest documentary ever made, one of. Barbara Koppel, just what she did with Harlan County, USA is incredible. It's nobody could have, nobody else could have done that. It's, it's remarkable. So, you know, all flowers, all awards to Barbara Koppel, I think just incredible direction on Harlan County, USA. We keep spreading the love here because uh, I, I guess I guess I'm the one that's going to give it to Marty then. So because uh, <laughs> I'm going to uh, I'm going with Rage and Bull because, uh, you know, first time watching it. If you have seen any of Scorsese's newer work, that formula, I guess it, 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 it's just so apparent. Like there's so many, I guess, what we would say like Scorsese-isms or just tropes and whatnot that you could just very clearly see in that film. And so I think for that alone and just the impact that I think he just continues to have and yeah, just had to give it up for him. Next up, we've got Best Screenplay. Sometimes we try and go out of left field with these picks. You know, Kyle uh, certainly kicked us off going out of left field and best actor. We try. Boom. We try and get unique. We try and get clever. But sometimes, like how Tom was prefacing, you know, De Niro for his best actor pick, sometimes you just got to go with the obvious. Sometimes you just have to call it what it is. In this season, we had inarguably one of the greatest screenplays of all time, taught in classes, everything. So I just got to say, all about Eve. All About Eve by Joseph L. Mankiewicz. That's, that's the best screenplay. That is a screenplay that not only, you know, they always say it should be taught in schools. It is taught in schools. It is it's just a perfect screenplay. There's, I, there's no argument. It's an incredible script. Um, it, it, it's, it's burning on the page. So my best screenplay uh, goes to All About Eve, obviously. So for me, I think, again, another tough one, but for me, it just... I think the, the work... John Houston did on the screenplay of Treasure of Sierra Madre is fantastic. Just the, just the way he doles out these characters and their info and just all, and just the progression of Bogart's madness and just the journey and the highs and lows and the dangers they face. Just, it's just a, I think it's just an immaculate script and one you might not think of immediately, but I just think it's just so good and so tight that, uh, it should be taught in schools, but uh, I think it's a, an amazing screenplay, so I'm going with Treasure of Sierra Madre. Um, I went with The Freshman. I thought um, out of the bunch, it was the least controversial, I guess, in the sense, or I guess even the most accessible, right? If we're trying to find one film that somebody's like, okay, show me why I should, I don't know, I jump into the rest of these films or, or whatever, like, uh, Freshman's relatively easy to, to get into, right? It's kind of hard to hate anything in that film or be like, well, you know what? This isn't particularly good. The Freshman just, again, kind of, as I reiterated at the beginning, kind of has that timeless feel that uh, I think kind of stands the test of time. So that's why I give it best screenplay. Next up, we've got best cinematography. This was just another easy one for me. The love's not getting spread around too much on my end, but I'm going with Raging Bull. Just gorgeous. One of the best looking movies ever made. What they did on that movie is stunning. Just iconography after iconography 
just the entire time. I, I just I just had to go with Raging Bull. I mean, Godfather came very close, but Raging Bull is just stunning work at technical craft. Uh, you know, I just can't believe every image in that movie exists. For me, you know, I was thinking about it and I was just trying to think of striking images, you know, moments and 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 shots that you know that that really just stuck with me and it's something we touched on in the episode just some incredible sequences whether it's you know the couple dancing to this bitter earth or the the kids leaping from building to building um but my pick for best cinematography is killer of sheep charles burnett just some unforgettable images captured under uh, difficult circumstances and without the finest technology or anything like that. And it's still just so many images that you could just frame on your wall, just incredible stuff. So my pick is is uh, Killer of Sheep. I went with All Quiet on the Western Front. I know growing up, Saving Private Ryan was a really impactful movie on my friend group and rightfully so it captures a period and a feeling and an event that no one wants to relive um and so i think kind of anytime anybody sort of has to approach that i don't know making you feel like you're there while reminding you why you're lucky not to you know has always just sort of been an interesting thing for me to look at with war films and whatnot so and i think all quiet on the western front just captures that really well Next up, we have best editing. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? Every, I, I, I keep looking at this list, and every once in a while I can pull something out, but sometimes I just got to go with the basic answer, and I have to go with the basic obvious answer here. There's no argument. It's Thelma Schoonmaker for Raging Bull. That's some of the finest film editing ever. That's a master class. It's incredible. Thelma's incredible. It's Best editing, Raging Bull. What am I doing? I, I, what am I supposed to say? We all, we, we know what we're doing. I mean, yeah, it's Raging Bull. Like, uh, <laughs> this is like Thelma last Sh- year when we were just like visual effects. It's Star Wars. <laughs> this is, I mean, you know. but it's just like Thelma Schoolmaker is maybe yeah. the, one of the maybe the best editor of all time. It's just, I mean, this movie's just the lyrical, propulsive quality of this movie is out of control, and it, it just has to be Raging Bull. Like, what else is there? Come on. I feel like we're about to find out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, admittedly I think thanks to, you know, our uh our, our episode, I guess just me getting a little bit more insight into learning how like the approach to this film, the production, just the post editing and just how it was very amateur, go with the flow, shouldn't have even worked and somehow did. I gave it to the river. I went with the river. Yep. I uh, I just really liked our conversation with Dr. Snyder and learning more about uh, there was I, I guess I guess it's just the antithesis of that, right? It's undeniable what Raging Bull does and stuff, right? But I think you can look at something like the river and see that as a reflection of if you aren't born of the craft or you know you, you spend your time learning the craft or anything like that, like that just genuine curiosity can still result in something meaningful. So I uh, I wanted to give recognition to the river. Before I jump, do you guys have two different answers for this one? For what? For song and score. Yeah. You both have yeah. two different answers for those? Okay, yeah. great. Okay, cool. Yeah, one's a song, one's a score. Great. Okay, sure. Okay. 
All right, so next up is best song. Um, if you guys remember my reaction in this episode, it was it ever going to be anything other than Night at Bold Mountain, the sequence in Fantasia? I mean, doesn't say best original song. Uh, so I will uh, I will fix that next year. But you're right. Yeah, it technically yeah. does not now. If there's a loophole, Tom will find a way through it. Yeah, I mean, it's most metal shit in the world. I guess we both did in a way. God damn it. Okay. It's most metal shit in the world. I mean, I flipped over a goddamn chair talking about this segment. It's the coolest thing. So, yeah. Night of Old Mountain sequence from Fantasia. Best song, baby. I would, I would assume if it was original song, you were probably going with Cheek to Cheek from Top Hat, right? That was the one that I know you were charmed by. Probably. I yeah. mean, I also don't remember songs. So, yeah. uh, my pick is uh, an original song from a film, but it's not from uh, you know we we did uh, Love Me Tonight, we did Top Hat, but it's not either of those. I alluded to it in our episode. It's one of my favorite musical numbers in any movie. Uh, my pick for best song is This Country's Going to War from Duck Soup. Just an anarchic, chaotic, dystopic <laughs> number that always brings me comfort when I think the world is spiraling. So that's my pick. I'm going to I'm going to double dip and use this as an opportunity uh to also use this uh well use this as an opportunity to also connect this into our other uh category best score uh cuz it's the Godfather. It's the Godfather waltz and it's the Godfather score. I mean, uh you know, it's I don't know what else I need to say about it. Anyway. Best score. Well, you know, <laughs> sometimes we try and go out of left field here. Sometimes we try and spread the wealth. No. But other times, it's the score to The Godfather. Yeah, I mean, like, what am what I getting? What, 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 what am what, I, what I we, Yeah, like, I mean, come on. There's, like, what, 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 what you got two, two, well, I guess I should say, like, one and a half Italians in this, in this podcast. Like, well, uh, it's just, I mean, The Godfather, it's just the best. It's the best. Well, it's also this thing of, like, Season one, we had Star Wars, and there, no other score was going to compete with Star Wars. It's just iconic. Season two, we have The Godfather. No other score is going to compete with The Godfather. And spoilers, season three, we have Lawrence of Arabia. So we're just, like, there's just one banger each season of, like, there's no argument here. So, yes, it's, got, it's The Godfather for score. That's our first all together on that one. Yep. That's why. Yep. Okay. And I'm gonna I'm gonna say it our last. I'm willing to bet. So. Uh, I think you, I think you're absolutely right. Yeah. So, uh, uh, What's next, the, Kyle? That's the only time I double dipped on my uh, on my list. So I know that at least for me. The next category is best costume design. Uh, so I'm going to go with the Treasure of the Sierra Madre. I just think it's just a very it you just get to know these characters on how they dress. It's just so immersive. You really just I mean, you just you could just smell these fucking guys. You could just smell how dirty they are, and you can just smell the lives they've lived. And uh, you know, this, I, this was a difficult one to be honest. It, I was thinking Ninochka, I was thinking the Godfather, but I kind of wanted to do something not not left field, but maybe one that wouldn't be obvious. And I think Sierra Madre's just pretty impeccable with how they dress these guys to look like the sweatiest nastiest fucks you've ever met in your life well don't worry tom i got your back because i double dipped here i picked ninochka 
The costumes in that film are incredible. And more importantly, like we touched on in our episode, they tell a story. Clothing and outside appearance is so important to the narrative, both for Melvin Douglas, who kind of dresses down as the film goes on, uh, and also Nanochka, who embraces more individuality in her clothing as the film goes on. I was considering something like Sullivan's Travels at a certain point, you know, things like that, you know, because that is, of course, the costume for part of the story there, too. But you just look at the way that they let Garbo transform in Nanochka, and it's just incredible, and, and all credit is due to those costumes. You know, All About Eve is, is a strong contender, too, um, but I, I just had to give it to Nanochka. I love that film. You know, I got a I got a soft spot for the the, the Western aesthetics, so uh, I gave it to uh, uh, Red River. Don't know what to tell you other than I just like I just like cowboys. <laughs> um, well, all right, congratulations, cowboys, yeehaw, partners. Um, next up, ah, this could be one that we might have another double dip for, but best art direction. This one I had to think about for a bit. There was a number of directions we could go, and I'm sure that I'm going to hear some compelling cases from these other guys. But when I thought about it, I kind of have to go with Dodsworth. From that opening shot of the giant sign saying Dodsworth and the window to, you know, many of the ship's quarters and, you know, his house, there's, you know what it is? I'm not going to tell you, sit here and tell people that it has the best art direction because it's the most realistic sets. It's not. Not the most realistic sets. There are many times you go, they're not on a boat. The sets and the art direction of Dodsworth, the the props that they choose, the furniture they choose, the sets that they built, they all are perfectly executed to convey the emotion of the scene. And I'll take that over to the detail realism any day the little balcony area where they stand, where they burn the letter and the way that that moves, it's so perfectly suited to that moment. Every set and every piece of decor is so perfectly suited to the moment it's there for that I that matters to me most of all. So my pick for best art direction is Dodsworth. All right. So my pick for best art direction is Raging Bull. I just think it is an unbelievably gorgeous movie. The way they dress those sets, it's a movie that manages to both be objective and subjective. And at times, it really feels like they're back in 1950s New York City. Uh, But then when they get into the boxing ring, it's just one of the most gorgeous, almost abstract movies you'll ever see. I mean, the shot of just the way they just make the ring bigger or smaller based on the emotion of the shot. The way, I mean, one of the most iconic shots, the way they just design it is when Sugar Ray is reeling back and he's about to just pummel De Niro and just the way that the, the, the whole scene just looks and the way it just feels like you're in fucking purgatory. It's just, I mean, the cinematography wouldn't be as great if that those sets just did not look that good. And uh, Raging Bull's my pick. Um, I went with Fantasia um, simply for the fact that it's a movie that uh, it's a Disney movie that both Mike and Tom can come together for uh, that is both uh, timeless, iconic, and as Tom has put it, metal as fuck. Um, <laughs> and so anything uh, that can do all three of those uh, deserves recognition in my book. Uh, so I wanted to give it to Fantasia. And then our final category of the list is best visual effects. I don't know how Mike's going to react to this one, but my pick for best visual effects is 
Fantasia. Animation is literally visual effects. And that entire movie is just gorgeous. And then you even get what you would more typically think of as a visual effect shot when the music notes come to life in front of the composer. Gorgeous movie. The animation work is out of control. And as a visual effect, one of the best things ever produced on film. I I just didn't know what else to say other than Fantasia. Plus those snowflakes on gears too is a visual effect. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, This one was tough. You know, I think we all will acknowledge this one was tough because last year we had Star Wars. And it's easy to look at the list of films we did this year and say there's nothing visually effects heavy. My pick, I have to give credit, the visual effects. You know, one of the problems we have with visual effects in film is they don't always hold up. There's plenty of stuff that looked cool when it first came out that now we look at and go, this looks terrible. Uh, You know, nobody's really praising the Dwayne Johnson Scorpion King and The Mummy Returns anymore. Uh, You know, it doesn't look great by modern standards. So one test of a visual effect is, does it still work years later? And that's why my pick for best visual effects is The Great Train Robbery. Because even though it's from the turn of the century, you know what? When that dude bashes in another man's head, even though we know it's a dummy, and even though you could nitpick exactly how it's positioned or anything like that, all of us on that episode went, holy shit, it's still visceral. The effects, the killings, in especially the bashing in the head, but the killings, so much of the great train robberies, visual trickery, is still visceral. It is still compelling over a hundred years later. I can't think of a better argument for quality visual effects than if it's still making us who watch visual effects spectacles all the time. If it's still affecting us, that credit has to be given. My pick for best visual effects is somehow the great train robbery. You can't think of an argument, and neither can I, so I'm also going with the Great Train Robbery as well. Ooh, wow, all right, yeah. Yep, for very much, again, the exact same reasons we've talked about, and I think even I might have even had a moment in our uh, episode, too. It's one of those moments where you really can see influence of photography that predates it, the evolution of the blockbuster then, and film as an action as we've come to know it, how that ultimately spills into... I don't know, set pieces when it comes to like 3D video games and whatnot. Like it, it all kind of comes from that blueprint. It's hard not to give that 15 minute short film. Uh, it's, it's, it's proper recognition. I don't say that to diminish it. I say to say like, damn, it's a, it's a good ass 15 minutes. So, you know, go find it. So now, now we are on to our, uh, our next order of business. Folks may uh, remember, may have noticed, at the end of each episode, we say films, Tom and I each pick a film that we think belongs in the National Film Registry. But that's not us just saying things to say things or to make movie recommendations. We actually submit these films to the National Film Registry. So I picked 25 movies. Tom picked 25 movies. We are we have actually taken these lists and submitted them to the Library of Congress for consideration when they select the next class of inductees. Now, this year, we did things a little differently. Uh, last year, two films that we picked got in before we had a chance to submit them, so we pulled them out, and Kyle picked some replacements. This year, as folks may have noticed, Kyle uh, made a registry pick on the Red River episode on which he guested. Kyle is also going to make another registry pick. We're letting him have 
one wild card a season just to pick whatever he wants, no restrictions, no relation to anything other than must be 10 years old in an American film. So what's going to happen right now is we're going to give you guys a refresher. We are going to let you know what Tom and I each picked that has officially been submitted to the National Film Registry at the Library of Congress for consideration, and we will see when they make their new selections, did anything we pick this season or last season get in. So here's a quick refresher on what Tom and I picked, 25 films from each of us, 50 films submitted to the National Film Registry. Here are the 25 films I feel should be in the National Film Registry. The Kid Stays in the Picture, Annabelle's Serpentine Dance, Scarface 1982, Inside Deep Throat, Fiddler on the Roof, Gimme Shelter, The Dover Boys at Pimento University, The Social Network, Dead Presidents, Juice, Jackass Number 2, definitely getting in that one, Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice, American Dream, Rejected, Lady and the Tramp, Pee-wee's Big Adventure, The Children's Hour, Harvest of Shame, Possibly in Michigan, The Elephant Man, Flesh, Claudine, Up in Smoke, How the Grinch Stole Christmas, and Davy Crockett, King of the Wild Frontier. And my 25 are Training Day, Bad Boys, Heat, Bram Stoker's Dracula, George Washington, The War Room, Here Come the Coeds, Sorcerer, Letters from Iwo Jima, The Outsiders, Smokey and the Bandit, The Bridges of Madison County, Blue Collar, 300, Breezy, Top Secret, Magnificent Obsession, Miss 45, Wes Craven's New Nightmare, Cross of Iron, Boomerang, Mikey and Nikki, The Naked Gun, High Plains Drifter, and Open Range. Now, of course, we submitted ours, but Kyle, in addition to his Red River pick, which I'm sure he'll remind us of, uh, submitted Dr. Snyder's pick of Head Starring the Monkeys, and a pick we do not know about. Kyle, what was your wild card pick that you submitted to the registry? So just to recap, um, my Red River pick was American Psycho. My wild card pick, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I didn't know if I wanted to uh, wrap up something that related to the season. I don't know if I truly wanted to take the wild aspect of the wild card and just uh, go uh, nuts. So I kind of did a compromise. I wanted to give Rebel Without a Cause more love in these categories than I could. And so I think in a way that Rebel Without a Cause defined that generation, I wanted to add a movie that also has sort of been recognized as sort of being a generation-defining film. Um, it's incredibly awkward. Just celebrated its 15th anniversary, you know, also very focused on uh, coming of age, uh, teenage angst and whatnot. Uh, I'm going with Superbad for my wildcard pick. Hell yeah. We love to see it. I figured you would. Uh, I was emboldened by the jackass pick, so I went, you know what? I think that works. That is both that is both a left field thing where, look, I don't think it is necessarily maybe the time for it to be inducted, but I think it is an eventuality. Like it may not be, you know, I don't think it will, I will eat a, I will eat cloth if it gets inducted this year, but like, I do think it needs cloth. to be recognized. I don't you even know, fucking know. You know, that old expression. The, you know, that I, will thing, I will eat cloth. cloth. So. Okay. Okay. Dirt. 
So I don't, that I don't have dirt in front of me, Tom. So that was submitted in the uh, to the National Film Registry. Uh, presumably, the next time you hear us on your feed will be us doing our live reactions to the next batch of registry picks, and we will find out did any of the films that we picked this year and submitted actually get in. Who knows? It happened last year. Could happen again. Probably not with Jackass number two. But hey, anything's possible. That'll be the next time you hear from us. But you'll hear from us a lot more in season three when we have 25 more films that we will be talking about. So right now, I am going to take us through the 25 films we'll be talking about on season three. And we'll hear from Kyle and Tom how many they've seen, what they're most interested in. And that's how we'll close out this finale. So here are the films we will be discussing in season three of You're Missing Out, coming a hell of a lot sooner than season two did. We'll be talking about 2001 A Space Odyssey, Stanley Kubrick's iconic game-changing science fiction film. The Battle of San Pietro, John Huston's war documentary. We'll be talking about The Blood of Jesus, Spencer Williams, uh, you know, a, a landmark early black filmmaker uh, making a religious-themed film in the 1940s. Talking about Chinatown. Nothing controversial with Chinatown. Uh, we'll be talking about City Lights. Charlie Chaplin is back on the show. Uh, we'll be so excited to talk about Chaplin again in maybe my favorite romantic comedy of all time. David Holzman's Diary, a fascinating uh, early... Uh, you know what? I don't even want to say anything about it. I don't want to spoil that for Tom and Kyle, who I am certain have not heard of that film before. We will be talking about a film you guys already know we're talking about because somebody already called dibs on it. That's right, Frankenstein. We are finally getting a dash of horror movie in the show, and uh, I guarantee Tom is chomping at the bit to talk about that one. Gertie the Dinosaur, one of the earliest animated films to give personality to its characters. Very excited to talk Gertie the Dinosaur. Gigi, the Vincente Minnelli lavish musical that won Best Picture. Greed, Eric von Stroheim's silent epic that has multiple different cuts of multiple different lengths. Will we be talking about the three-hour cut? Will we be talking about the five-hour cut? Will we decide to talk about the five-hour cut and Tom decides to watch the three-hour cut anyway because he's not going to sit through five hours of silent film? Seems possible. Who knows? Uh, More than likely. (laughs) (laughs) High school. Frederick Wiseman's documentary about a seemingly average high school that sort of telegraphs the changing of the times. I am a fugitive from a chain gang, a riveting drama. The Italian, a classic silent film about the Italian immigrant struggle. King Kong, the epic giant monkey movie that I love with all my heart. Lawrence of Arabia, one of the truly greatest films of all time, landmark, best picture winning epic. We'll be talking about the magnificent Ambersons, Orson Welles' great hacked to death lost film that's still really good even in its hacked to death parts. Uh, My Darling Clementine, as alluded to in our Red River episode, the classic John Ford story of Wyatt Earp. We'll be talking about Out of the Past. Quite frankly, if you guys have ever seen a parody of a film noir, it's pretty much parodying Out of the Past. As talked about also on our Red River episode, we'll be talking about A Place in the Sun, the Montgomery Clift, uh, Elizabeth Taylor uh, stirring drama of greed and corruption in America. The Poor Little Rich Girl, a classic, the most iconic Mary Pickford film. That's right. We've talked about some of the big boys of silent film, but the biggest actress of the silent era, Mary Pickford. We finally get to talk about her. 
The Prisoner of Zenda, an absolutely riveting swashbuckling film that I had no expectations for before I saw it, and I love to death. We'll be talking about Hitchcock's Shadow of a Doubt, one of his less celebrated films, but, but probably one of his best. We are visiting Buster Keaton again as we talk about Sherlock Jr., uh, a meta-comedy that is still funny to this day. Uh, folks, I, I can't wait for folks to see that one. We also get to talk about our first non-English language film. That's right. The American Film Registry contains films that aren't just in English, and the first film inducted that was not an English language film is Tevya, a brilliant reputation. Uh, brilliant representation of the Yiddish theater scene. So we'll be watching a Yiddish film that adapts uh, Sholem Aleyhem's famous Tevye the Dairyman stories decades before Fiddler on the Roof did. And the last film we'll be talking about, at least in alphabetical order, Trouble in Paradise, a crisp 90-minute Ernst Lubitsch romantic comedy about thieves. So a lot of interesting stuff in there. Uh, fellas, if you were keeping track, is is this going to be a lot of new viewings for you guys or mostly repeat viewings for you guys of what we're covering? Oh, I don't know. Probably about uh, half and half, I think. I, I don't know. I'd have to do, like, actually break it down, but okay. uh, it shouldn't be too much work. I've seen King Kong. Well, all right. Going to be a long stretch for this. So I have two questions for you guys as we wrap this up, because I've now watched all of these films ahead of this. Of the films that you've seen of that 25, which one are you most excited for to talk about? Yes. Okay. So for me, it's, uh, Mike alluded to it, it's Frankenstein. Love that movie. Landmark, iconic, still great horror movie. Love watching it. Just got a brand new 4K release that looks great. Can't wait to like actually sit down and ingest it and not just have it as background noise. But uh, yeah, can't wait to get talk about that in depth with whoever we get, uh, whatever great guest we get for that one. So Frankenstein with a bullet. I mean, you know who we have for that one. No, I come on. Do I remember anything from the show? Okay, <laughs> it's it's Patrick Cotner. He called it back on How Green Is My Valley. Okay, we'll be talking about Frankenstein and Star Wars Bounty Hunter, the PlayStation Two game. Of course, we are. <laughs> I've only seen King Kong. So you're most excited about King Kong. Good. I can only, I, I think by default, I can only. Honestly, just, just to date us what, when we're recording this, uh-huh. uh, the Disney Plus King Kong series will be a serialized action adventure drama focusing on, what? A, on, focusing on a new Kong. The series will explore King Kong's origin story and the mythology behind Skull Island. Uh, they can't say King Kong. I have been recording for... Uh, when did this drop? When the hell did this... Who allowed... I, it had to be I, just I now. Think, I, th- I think it was during Red River. When we were, you like, gotta be kidding the end of the Red River episode. Yep, holy shit, look at that. It. Yeah. Well, all yeah, right. Because so that... Apple's we'll get into it in the episode, but that, that novel's in the public domain. It's very confusing. All right. Last question, fellas. Of the films you haven't seen... So for Kyle, of the 24 other titles. Of the films <laughs> you haven't seen... Which one are you most intrigued by? Which one are you most excited to to discover for the first time? Uh, for me, it's a tie. It's uh, Out of the Past and Battle of San Pietro. Uh, love me a good noir, and uh, Robert Mitchum's in that. Love me some good old Bobby Mitch. Um, and John Huston's one of my boys, so I'm very excited to dive into uh, his one of his World War II docs. I'm very excited to see what that was like. Just... Any, any John Houston I can get, I'm always into. 
Tom, I had no idea you'd never seen Out of the Past before, and I need you to know you will be a pig in shit during that movie. I I haven't be, just haven't gotten around will, to it yet. You kind of knew it. So happy. I think I bought it when I bought like eight hundred Warner Archives discs when the rumor was going around that Warner Archive was closing because I and knew we were going to have to get through the it. rest of Warner did. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, you know, I was waiting to get to it a little sooner to the season, so I will be getting to that soon enough, but yeah. And Kyle, it's, uh, one of the, <laughs> one of the 24. 24. Yeah. Uh, for me, I'm, I'm most looking forward to probably Lawrence of Arabia. Uh, I, I think discussion wise, uh, I'm most eager for 2001 because I have no way, I have no idea how I'm going to swing about that movie. All right, Kyle. Uh, yeah. Depending on when we get around to recording Lawrence of Arabia, if there's no seventy millimeter screening happening, you're coming to my house and watching the four K disc because that's not Deal. a movie you yeah. can watch no. on a fucking phone or your Ooh, fucking computer. No, 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 no. And no, by no, that sir. point, I should have my surround sound system set up, so it's going to be immersive. You let me know. I listen. Like I said, I mean, I guess to kind of connect it to another question that we talked about and whatnot like i'm at the point now where i'm like okay what movies are worth seeing and what movies are worth seeing on a big screen lawrence of arabia is definitely one that i want to experience to the best of my i ability, mean so. of this year it's lawrence of arabia in 2001 uh and lawrence of arabia might be just the answer for all seasons <laughs> it might <laughs> yeah. just be the yeah. number one movie yeah. to see on the big screen of anything ever made of all time so with that being said, folks, we want to thank everybody for checking out another season. Uh, I think it always uh, surprises us, not just the amount of people that listen, but the amount of people that listen to every episode. You know, we know that as we move through this show, we cover some films that aren't exactly popping up on everybody's uh, searches, you know, uh, and we're so glad that people are checking those movies out. We are so glad to hear from folks who have been checking out the show. We'd love to hear from you in the review section of iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts because uh, that helps people find the show. Leaving a review is super helpful for us. It really does get the word out and we would love to get the word out about the show, uh, especially as we head into season three. We have some cool stuff lined up. We have some cool stuff we're working on and we will be back sooner than last time with season three, but we hope you guys will come back for season three. If uh, in the meantime, we have a whole back catalog episodes you guys can check out. We're really looking forward to doing this, and uh, we hope you'll stick with us. Thank you guys so much uh, for a great season two. Let's all go to the lobby, lobby, lobby. Thank you so much to everyone who has supported us for two whole seasons. We'll be back in December for our live reactions of the 2022 registry picks. And you can look out for season three coming early 2023. Check out the show notes to follow the show, Mike and Tom, for the latest updates. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you again next time. Here on You're Missing Out. They honor movies of historical, cultural, or aesthetic importance on the National Film Registry.